Good morning. Feels like a homecoming to me. I don't feel like a visitor in the least. It's so good to see so many familiar faces. Even Vel, all the way from India, came to hear me this morning. <laughs> Vel, I was teasing him. Uh, Nathan, were you on that old rag hike uh, that we, Vel was on? And I said, hey, Vel, afterwards, we're going to go hiking. You want to go? And he gave this really long pause. Oh, I don't know, because on the hike, I can remember at one point, he said, you know, my feet hurt so bad, I think if I, if I went barefoot, it might even feel better. I don't know. <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a fun time. Good to see you, Val. My, my, also, my mother is here in the back, Martha Dito, if you can greet her afterwards. But um, so good to see so many of you all. And Kevin, I mean, I don't know if it's confidence or amnesia that had, you come, had, had me come back on your fifth anniversary here of what I said on that Sunday, but uh, I want to thank you for letting me come back and share with you. Um, we celebrate the Epiphany uh, tomorrow, officially, right? The 6th. Today is Epiphany Sunday, I guess you could say, and it's a day highlighting the three wise men, or the Magi, whom we sometimes call the three kings, even though the Magi were not kings, and we don't know how many there were, we only say three because there were three gifts. There are lots of little tidbits of myths and nostalgia built around this story, so we have to be careful. And so just the other day, for instance, I just uh, heard on the, on the interwebs uh, a report that scholars now believe Jesus ignored the Magi's gifts and just played with the boxes they came in. <laughs> From the reliable vo uh, voice of Babylon B. <clears throat> the term epiphany means to show, or to make known, or even to reveal. The wise men, or magi, who brought gifts to the child Jesus were the first Gentiles to acknowledge that Jesus is king and worship him. And so they were the first to show or reveal Jesus to a wider world as the incarnate Christ. This act of worship, which corresponded to Simeon's blessing, that this child Jesus would be a light to, for revelation to the Gentiles, was one of the first indications in the Gospels that Jesus came for all people of all nations, of all races, and that the work of God in the world is not limited to only a few. This is significant. We just read today a passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, likely to the Gentile churches there. This letter would have been tremendously encouraging to the non-Jewish believers who received it, and its message that Christianity is not bound by ethnicity is important for readers today to hear. No matter our nationality or heritage, this letter to the Ephesians is filled with reminders that God's kingdom is open to all those who put their faith and trust in him. You could say that God reveals himself to the Magi by contextualization, an in vogue term, meaning the, that something is shared in their cultural context and language in a way that they can understand. Tim Keller talks about this, saying that contextualization is not what they want, but rather giving people God's answers to questions that they may not want as they ask them and in terms that they can understand. That's what happened to the Magi, and that's what's happening to us. We have a culture, and by God's grace, he has communicated to us in a zillion ways. We have the Living Bible, the Message, the English Standard Version, and we have many different ways that we worship. We even hear from people that can communicate to in a way that, 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 that's our language that are perhaps discipling us, like 
Yeah, young life volunteers in sweatshirts, yeah, using terms like, dude, it's so cray-cray, but he was so lit. <laughs> My daughter, Eva, told me that I, I, I said that spot on. He wasn't throwing, he, uh, the, the, here's the thing, all other religions are rightly called ethnic religions because they are generally related to a particular culture, region, or people. Christianity is not a white man religion, but Semitic. Not Western, but born in the near east of Palestine, the crossroads of Asia, Africa, and Europe. I was recently in Pakistan, and five times a day, and occurring at just the least desirable moments, 4.30 a.m., in the middle of an interview, a call to prayer goes up. Urdu is the co-national co language of Pakistan, along with English. But the prayer is in Arabic. It is a very ethnocentric religion, and so are the others. Islam is Arabic, Judaism, Jews, Shintoism, Japan, Buddhism, Asian cultures, Confucianism, Chinese. There's an excellent book by Laman Sana who has passed away now, but called Translating the Message. And he says that the translation of the Bible has made Christianity a preserver rather than a destroyer of indigenous languages and cultures. He makes an excellent case for it. Today, Jesus is like a magnet, attracting from all cultures. Long before multicultural was cool, there has been a diversity in the family of God and the community of Jesus. Let's not forget that on Pentecost, the gospel was being spread to many languages. It was less than 90 years ago that the most advanced countries in science, philosophy, and military were proponents of the eugenics theories, which said that certain races like Aryans or Aryans or Japanese are superior. For those of you who may not know, my calling card is video. That's what I do for a living mostly, but now I'm spreading, as, as Kevin said, into as a communications director. So on Christmas Day, this recent one, I was pulling together a video showing Anglicans from around the world celebrating Christmas. I had gathered photos and videos from Australia, Uganda, Ethiopia, England, US, and even Guatemala and Brazil, Anglicans. <clears throat> it was a moving experience to see how so many cultures and languages in so many ways, but with a consistency in worship and focus, were bringing all glory, laud, and honor to the King Jesus. The video was a part of a responsibility in the organization I began working on this year. And, you know, it, 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 <laughs> the responsibility came amidst the same time that uh, uh, many other turbulent things happening. You have, you have one of those years when you, you wish that the, the major events could be spread out over a couple of years. Kevin wouldn't know any of this feeling at all, I don't think, right? Moving his family, moving the church, moving, 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 all that kind of thing. And I found myself at the head of GAFCON as a communications director. And um, as, a, as, a, as the director, I started uh, wondering, you know, how do I, how do I communicate this, uh, what, what they're all about in a way that doesn't sound like a reaction and, and more of a legalistic type of thing. Kevin and I were talking about this and that we're, we're just returning to the scriptures. It was more about, my, I saw my job was sharing with the global movement that is actually happening around the world. GAFCON stands for, I'll say it again, GAFCON stands for, it's not a new rebel alliance in the Star Wars series. GAFCON stands for Global G, Anglican A, Future F, Conference, Con, Conference. 
And my, I felt that I needed to emphasize more the global Anglican movement aspect of it. When I finally posted that video, I said, watch how the sun never sets on the Anglican Christians around the world who are celebrating Christmas. One of the reasons I'm mentioning this is that you are essentially, you are essentially part of the GAFCON movement. GAFCON is about Anglicans worldwide standing together to retain and restore the Bible to the heart of Anglican, of Anglican communion. Its mission is to guard the unchanging, transforming gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim him to the world, and the key word is, faithfully. <clears throat> Church of the Lamb is in the Diocese of Christ our Hope, which is in the province of the Anglican Church in North America, ACNA, which is ACNA. North America means U.S., Mexico, and Canada, right? And is led by Archbishop Foley Beach, whom you pray for on a regular basis. And Archbishop Foley Beach is the chairman of GAFCON. And Archbishop Ben Kwashi of Jos, Nigeria, is the general secretary of GAFCON. There are nine active provinces within GAFCON around the world which are actively supporting it, and that number might be growing. In the summer of 2018, GAFCON held a big conference in Jerusalem where all kinds of bishops, archbishops, clergy, lay leaders attended, and they represented not 30%, they represented 75 to 85% of the Anglican communion. What was and is happening is that in historic provinces around the world, like the Episcopal Church, tech, Bible-based Anglican Orthodoxy is being abandoned by some of these historic provinces. What essentially happened about 10 years ago in the U.S. is now really starting to take place in the U.K. with the Church of England. Just the other month, a rector who traces his roots to the Normans and is about as blue blood and Anglican as you're going to get, he made the difficult decision to walk away from his gorgeous, picturesque cathedral in Foy Harbor in the Cornwall region. His name is Phil de Greywater, good friend, and his problem is that he feels he hasn't walked away from Anglicanism, but rather the Church of England Anglicanism has walked away from the core of who they are. And so what does he do? He's Anglican. Where does he go? Well, under a diocese called the Anglican Church, England Mission in England, which is receiving cover from the Anglican Church in North America, he and his parish have formed the Anglican, excuse me, the Anchor Anglican Church in Foy. They're about your size now, and they're thriving. It's just a joy to see them. They're in that video. If you go to the GAFCON website and you see that, you know, the, the overview of Christmas, you'll see some pictures of them. This is happening over and over throughout the communion in Brazil and New Zealand and Canada. And so GAFCON is serving as a means to connect like-minded Anglicans remaining in the communion to support, encourage, pray, and remain a prophetic voice within the communion. Ten networks, ten in GAFCON, like the Bishop Training Institute Network, to train new bishops and their wives as to what it means to be a godly teacher and leader have been formed. So like in Brazil, there was the sixth one with bishops. They'd never been trained on how to be a bishop, so they're being trained. Part of why I was in Pakistan was to meet with the leaders of the Suffering Church Network. They need to share information on how to best survive and thrive under persecution. They want to let the outside world know what is happening through their eyes, not just the lens of the New York Times, the UN, the Archbishop of Canterbury, or Washington, D.C. For instance, did you know that in Nigeria, 
This has been a particularly grim Christmas season, for there have been church, business, and home burnings. Nine beheadings, the kidnapping of a bride-to-be on her wedding day, and other Christians consistently persecuted over the past two weeks. This is just two weeks ago. You barely hear a blip of this in the press, but Nigeria is a key front line in the spiritual battle with the forces of darkness. Archbishop Ben Kwashi has been on the front line. He and his wife, Gloria, have experienced persecution firsthand at great physical and economic cost. Yet, God continues to use them in amazing ways, as outlined in this phenomenal book called Neither Bomb Nor Bullet. It's an autobiography. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I thought, eh, it would be kind of this ghost-written kind of book. Fascinating. You, you, I think you'd really enjoy it. I have high regard for this man after reading it. Why do I share all this stuff? Well, let me get back to the passage and fold in some of the reasons why I talk about GAFCON. It should be no surprise to us, having the benefit of Scripture and the history of the church, to know that we serve a surprising God who reveals in surprising ways to unexpected people. This is how God does it, right? Throughout the generations, he is the surprising God. The same God who reveals himself today in dreams and visions to Iranians and Pakistanis and learned Ivy League doctoral students is the same God who revealed himself to others throughout time in various unique ways. Listen to the list. From Abraham to Joseph, to Moses in the burning bush, to Naaman the Gentile general asked to bathe in the stinky, muddy Jordan, to Rahab the Gentile prostitute from Jericho, to the Gentiles of Nineveh, through Jonah, the reluctant, grumpy prophet barfed on the beach by a large fish, to the very young Virgin Mary, to the very confused Joseph, to the mangy shepherds, underwhelming in their occupation, but overwhelmed by the choir of angels, to the Gentile astrologist Magi, far away where Matthew begins, to the Roman centurion and all his household, who Matthew also alone tells his Goyan, or Gentile story, whose faith was declared greater than anyone Jesus had met. To the Samaritan woman by the well, to the end of the gospel, where Matthew shows the disciples worshiping the resurrected Jesus on the, on the mountain and him proclaiming the great commission, saying to the world, go and make disciples of all nations. To Augustine in a garden, to the slave trader turned amazing grace uh, hymn writer John Newton, to the brilliant Iranian friend Berhan, who's a flutist and studying his, for his doctorate in Italy and who is in Pakistan with me, work, working and worshiping with the people there. What's so fascinating about this story and what captures our imagination is that God speaks and reaches out to the Magi, coming from the east, probably Persia, astro astrologers or magicians or interpreters of dreams, you know, like Daniel, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Abednego, they were kind of like them. They could have been advisors to royalty, but most other times throughout the Bible, they are condemned through the magical arts and astrology. Only Matthew speaks of them in positive terms. There are a lot of different theories as to what events in the skies took place that could have drawn the Magi. Could have been Halley's Comet, a rare occurrence of Jupiter and Saturn with all the symbolism they hold. Or there was a major rumor at the time that a great king would come out of Judea. And it wasn't just the Jews hoping for a Messiah, but pagans were believing this too. 
Omens from the stars in the time of Jesus were nothing to be brushed aside. The appearance of comets, for example, were assumed to pretend or announce the birth of the death of someone of great consequence. Suetonius tells us that when a comet appeared over Rome, Nero, covering his bases, took the precaution of having several Roman noblemen executed so that it would have declared their deaths, not his. So you put these two factors together, the rumors and the planetary alignment, and then this could have, and maybe this could have led them. Whatever it was, God gave them a star. He used their study of stars, as misguided as astrology can be, to lead them. Should we be surprised, really, that the God who reached all the people I just listed is the same God who called Persian or Mede astrologers to reveal who Jesus really is? Should we be surprised by this? For as much as God does not like astrology, he is a God of outrageous grace because he loves astrologers. He will do whatever it takes to draw them to himself. Here is the ironic, the unexpected, the untamable God. Here is the missional reaching out God, the one who reveals himself and in whom no people are too alien for him to find. What's interesting is that the story of the Magi adds another fold in how God reveals himself. For while they were led by the star to Jerusalem, it wasn't until they were there that they received scriptural confirmation where they learned it was Bethlehem where the Messiah would be born. The star followers were confirmed by scripture in their searching. This indeed is a good reminder lest we get sidetracked with visions and dreams. God can and does use signs and wonders, and he is right now. With my, I ran into several of them in Pakistan that were very clearly signs and wonders, but it runs congruently and confirming with his written word. Isn't it interesting that not only Herod was troubled, but all Jerusalem was troubled on this birth. We see the same language in Matthew's gospel when Jesus arrives on the outskirts of Jerusalem. The city is again shaken or unnerved. Why? Perhaps the people knew that when Herod and Rome are not happy, no one is happy. The Magi's presence from the east as strangers helped bring to light to Herod and his men something they weren't seeing, but it did not move them to faith. In this story, we see contrasting responses. We see Herod's response, the clenched fist, the paranoid, demented, miserable, distorted self-preservationist who responded with destruction and anger. But what is our clenched fist like? What is our life? Out of fear, paranoia, feelings where we are out of control in life, we sometimes respond with anger, bitterness, projection, victimization, tearing down others, sometimes even self-destruction through substance abuse or eating habits. We discover that we're really not as in control as we thought we were. If we listen and respond with an open-handed response to God, we find that we were created to be filled with something greater than ourselves. When we submit to Jesus, we submit to life itself, the author of life, the author of peace, the author of all joy and love, to turn ourselves over to him who can make it complete because he knows how that can happen. In surrendering ourselves and giving up our life, we will find it, a new creation in him. The other response is the, is the religious leaders who are like holding on, who are holding on tight with the clenched hand, wanting to control everything. The Magi's response was a desert crossing, one step at a time, open-handed response. 
Clearly the Magi continued to be sensitive to forces outside their control. For being advised by the angel, they changed their plans. They likely went home on a route that was less traveled, maybe more dangerous, maybe more boring, maybe longer, but the route that was God-ordained. This is the quote, I love it, by Robert uh, the father of Robert Barron. Faith in the Bible is a willingness to risk, under the providence of God, some great adventure. Faith is being will in the Bible is willingness to risk, under the providence of God, some great adventure. Have you allowed yourself, your life, to be replotted this year, this decade? So I told you I would fold back into this talk the work of GAFCON. You know that my wife Katrina's restaurant, her current motto is, uh, her restaurant, a bowl of good, her motto is, we're better when we eat good food together. Well, for the church, local and global, I believe that we are better when we journey on this adventure in Christ together. You know that when Church of the Angl Incarnation started, we were under the diocese of the Anglican Church of Rwanda in Africa. Our Anglican DNA is international. I will be leaving this Saturday for Kigali, Rwanda, to scout out the facilities for a big uh, GAFCON conference that would be taking place this summer with upwards of four to 500 bishops. Most of them bishops that are, will, will not be attending Lambeth, which is this year. Rwanda has gone through immense suffering and persecution due to the genocide that took place there. I notice you guys uh, drink the coffee from the land of Thousand Hills, right? It's Rwandan coffee. They saw the persecution of the clergy in the U.S. over orthodox doctrinal issues and reached out to us. The story of Anglicanism is really a global story. Whether we like it or not, we are connected globally. To hide our heads in the sand is to hide from our own identity. It is important that we now know and hear from each other in our joys. As for instance, right now, in Brazil, we are seeing an exploding Anglican church. There are successes that we can learn from them. Maybe we can garner something from them. For instance, I was there in Jean Paseo, where it's like a gym kind of like this, where they have wall-to-wall -wall mats, and from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., they have jiu-jitsu classes, mostly with men. Jiu-jitsu, the pastor is a black belt. When the church starts, they roll up the mats, they put them aside, have church service. I mean, you think you've got complications. They've got these mats and everything they've got to roll up. It's awesome. It's just absolutely awesome seeing what's happening with that. And the church is exploding. And one of the reasons is how they're reaching out to men in that way. They have this cool thing where they, they, they will ask unbelievers, agnostics or whatever, it doesn't matter, in their neighborhoods, hey, we want to have a house of peace, whole host a house of peace. Will you host it? A house of peace, right? What's a house of peace? Well, we want to learn how to bring peace back to our families and our communities and the world. And next thing you know, the church is hosting in this unbeliever's home a house of peace, which then turns into a Bible study, which then turns into a church plant. And they're exploding in this way. It's fascinating what they're doing. But it, we can't know that unless, unless we start looking in, in, in places like on the website with GAFCON or in other resources that can tell you about what's happening. We need to follow each other globally to understand our sorrows, like in Pakistan. I told you about the Nigerian experience, but in Pakistan when I was there, it's a visceral oppression. It's 
always having to look over your, over your shoulder. It's a very different experience. You don't know what you can, when and when, where you can say something. I was, <clears throat> was experiencing jet lag the first day or so, but I was also, I was telling you it was a turbulent year, year for me and my family, and it was. And I was feeling depressed, I'll be honest with you, just flat out depressed. Jet lag too contributed to it. And the first day I was just laying there in the bed at nap time, I guess, my eyes wide open, looking at the ceiling. And I get a knock on the door, a frantic knock on the door. I open it. Come, come, come. You must come. You must come. Well, I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing, but they had me in a program. What I was at was a conference. It was a creative worship arts conference. And they broke up 100 to 200 Pakistanis into different 10 groups in which each group would compose a song based on the Christian calendar that was assigned to them along with scripture. And I was to be the Simon Cowell along with three others to go around and to listen to them and critique them and everything. And it was fascinating. By the end of the 10th group, two hours later, watching them completely transparent, allowing this dashing bald uh, gringo to critique them and their unfettered joy, I, by the end of the 10 groups, was just rejoicing with them. And they just let it go and their composition... Uh, you guys, Benichis, you would have just, you should be there. It was just unbelievable watching their creativity. But what I found, it's a metaphor for what can happen. If you don't think we're in a spiritual warfare and we need the uplifting from them just as much as they need from us, then you're crazy. I mean, look at, look at our, our, our issues that we have here with the drugs and things like that. We need to support each other. One of the, let me just say this. In praying for the persecuted church, what they specifically ask you to pray for is not necessarily to have the persecution lifted. They pray to be sustained, that God would sustain them through the persecution. It's just a little key for when you pray for the next. I share all this to challenge you to be active listeners to the Magi, to the foreigner, whether afar, or the immigrants in our midst. I'm going to ask a, a specific thing for you all to think about, to challenge you. To carve out a missions minute or a global minute, however you want to call it. If you want tips and advice on how, what you can be praying for, you follow the GAFCON site. They've got all these uh, prayers of the days and things like that that you can follow. They have devotions that you can follow. But you go to that and you specifically become more intentional about what is happening in and around the world. I also ask specifically, is there a volunteer or a group that would like to work with me that I can feed you and work, maybe meet with you once a month or something like that? Talk to me afterwards if you're interested. Finally, I would ask you to focus on the international students. International students is one of the ripest fields to harvest. As we worship with, work side by side, care for, listen, and incorporate people from other cultures who look, act, and perhaps speak differently into our fellowship. We understand something very important about God and his kingdom. We see in here that his glory is covering all the earth. And it is a kingdom being built inside and outside of our sphere through people we will one day be shocked to be rubbing shoulders with before his throne. We see that God is much bigger than our culture. We see people who are risking the same great adventure under the providence of God. And we and they are sustained by it 
in the journey of faith. Thank you all.